Hi, I'm Isra Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio, a football podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. Loaded pod for you today. I talked with my buddy Lou Maloney about the Breslow hiring, what Lou thinks of Craig Breslow. Can he do a good job right away? Of course, this is a massive opportunity, but also a massive challenge. This is a fan base that wants to see the Red Sox back in the postseason. So we'll get into what Lou thinks, of course, of the hiring, but secondarily, what the plan should be in the offseason. Then we'll talk with my buddy John Jastrzemski, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, of course, the host of New York, New York, also hosts the Ringer Wise Guys show, which airs Sunday mornings on FanDuel TV. That airs at 11 a.m. Make sure you check out that show. But J.J., of course, a lifelong Dolphins fan, so we'll preview the Pats and the Dolphins with J.J., of course, that game coming up on Sunday. May give J.J. a little bit of crap, too, about Porzingis lighting up the Knicks. Of course, J.J. is a Knicks fan, so we'll get into that with J.J. as well. Okay, so... I did want to touch on some leftover Celtics thoughts. I'm just so fired up right now about this team and about what Porzingis means to this team. And seeing Tatum going nuts after he hit the three from Tatum, of course, that late double team. He finds Porzingis. Porzingis hits the deep three. And just the trigger on that thing, man. He got rid of it so quickly. And you can see Tatum celebrating. Clearly, Tatum loves playing with Kristaps Porzingis. He said after the game he can shoot from anywhere. And he just started laughing about it. And then he said he's a really, really good player. He knows that there's something special brewing between him and Kristaps Porzingis right now. I mean, Porzingis in that game, just to go through a couple of other things that we didn't get to the other night, 38 minutes and he's a plus 13 with Porzingis off the court, 10 minutes minus nine. So we're talking about a 22 point swing. That's how important Kristaps Porzingis was to the team's first win. And I'm not overreacting to one win. I'm just saying he had a huge impact in that game. The defense with Porzingis on the court. 98.7 rating. The Cavs led the NBA with a 109.9 defensive rating last year. So you were 11.2 points per 100 better than the league's best defense with Kristaps on the floor. If you look at off the court, the Celtics had just a 133.1 defensive rating, which is atrocious. The Spurs were last last season at 119.6. 
So yeah, it was the first night. Things can be a little bit noisy, but I think we saw what Porzingis can do for this team. And he can be a deterrent at the rim. He had four blocks in that game. And if you look at the Knicks, they were just 18 of 56 on twos in that game. That's just 32.1%. Absolutely atrocious, right? <laughs> the Pistons were the worst two-point shooting team last year at 51.6%. So we're talking about a team that was 195 Percentage points worse than the worst team in the NBA last year. That's how bad the Knicks were in that game on Wednesday night. So, yes, some of this can be noisy. Like, obviously, not every team is going to shoot 32.1% on twos when Kristaps Porzingis is playing. But he certainly altered a lot of shots. Like, some of the numbers we're seeing from the Knicks offense, you can tell, yeah, that was Porzingis' impact on the game. But one thing I will say is the Knicks got up 41 threes, which the Celtics don't want to see another team taking 41 Threes. Only three teams last year took more than 41 threes on a per game basis. The Celtics, of course, one of them. And the Knicks hit 18 of them, 43.9%. So that kept the Knicks in the game. And the Knicks sort of won the math game when it comes to that. The Celtics were outscored by 18 points at the three point line. Joe is going to hate that. So that's something that certainly has to change. Like they get a better, do a better job running guys off the three point line. The Celtics have been good doing this in previous years. It just wasn't the case the other night. The good thing is when they did run guys off the three-point line, they couldn't hit anything from two-point territory. But Porzingis, the defensive activity was outstanding. I thought it was awesome, too, that the Celtics grinded out a win. They were just 26-24 and 24 when they hit less than 40% of their threes last year. And if you look at it, they basically hit, they were not hitting threes whatsoever. So it does help you where they shot south of 40% from three. It does help you when you take 22 free throws. The other thing the Celtics did well without the three ball going down is they did a really good job from two-point territory. They hit 65.8% of their twos in this game the other night. They were 25 of 38. So the Knicks last year led the league, or excuse me, the Kings led the league last year at 58.6% from two. So the Celtics were 7.2 percentage points better than the best team shooting twos last year. And that's because of what Porzingis sort of opened up for this offense, getting back to this whole theme. Tatum had 10 made twos. The only guys that averaged 10 or more made twos last season were Embiid and Giannis. Those guys are physically dominant. It sort of tells you how Jason Tatum played the other night. And furthermore, we saw Tatum go 6 of 7 on his drives. That's 85.7%. And he had 13 points on his drives. Three players averaged north of 13 points per game off of drives last season. Shea, Luka, and Ja. Shea's a guy that wants to get to the basket. Ja's one of the best athletes in the league, wants to get to the basket and duck on you. And Luka is the type of guy that slowly, methodically gets to the basket, right? So that's big to see that Tatum's in that sort of company. And the drives can go up. It was only seven in the game. Tatum last season averaged 8.2 points per game off his drives. In this game, of course, that was 13. He can even drive the ball to the basket more. And I do feel like having Porzingis out there will open up the driving lanes for this team throughout the season. So this is partly an example of Porzingis opening up the lane for Tatum, but secondarily, Tatum rather, using his physicality to get downhill. So I'm so pumped with this duo going forward. I really believe, and I know like it's only one game. I believe this duo is going to bring out the best in each other. Like this is awesome to see. Tatum, you get spacing from Porzingis. With Porzingis, you get a guy that's going to get you wide open opportunities because the attention that he puts on the defense. I think this is unbelievable. This duo that the Celtics now have with Porzingis and Tatum. Great job by Brad Stevens getting Porzingis in the trade. But these two guys, they've barely played together. And you can already see they have a really good chemistry on the court. Now, 
The concern I have, I mentioned it the other night, it's Jalen Brown. I went through the brutal stretch and all that and not throwing the ball to a wide open Tatum. But Jalen was fourth in the NBA last season in shots per game at 20.6. Only Luka, Tatum, and Damian Lillard took more shots per game than Jalen. He took more shots per game than Donovan Mitchell, Giannis, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, and Embiid. So the MVP and an MVP candidate in Giannis, he finished third in the voting, and two guys that were like fringy MVP candidates in Shea and Donovan Mitchell. Okay, so that's where Jalen was last year, taking more shots per game than those guys. He has not been south of 18 shots per game since the 1920 season. And I just think Porzingis, because of what we're just talking about with him and Tatum, that two-man game, he's going to get more shots, or at least should, than Jalen. He took 15 in the opener, but he also took 10 free throws. So he had a lot more shooting possessions, if you will, than just the 15 shots. And you cannot justify running that two-man game with Jalen when Tatum's on the court, right? It just, it wouldn't make any sense. Tatum's way better at it. You could keep Porzingis on the court with Jalen when Tatum's off the court, but Drew Holiday and Derek White are better equipped to run that two-man game than Jalen is because Jalen is not somebody that is protective of the basketball. He turns it over a lot. And secondarily, Derek White and Drew Holiday, not to say they're the best passers, but they're certainly better passers than Jalen Brown is. So it's not going to be in terms of the sacrifice we're asking for here. It's not going to be Ray Allen, right? Where Ray Allen was seven and a half shots. He took less than his previous season when he came over in the trade from Seattle. But how about Chris Bosh? He went from 16 and a half his final year in Toronto to 13.7 his first year with the Heat. That's almost 2.8, or I should say that's exactly 2.8 less shots per game. So almost three. I just think that's going to have to happen with Jalen. I think it's actually going to happen naturally. If he does take... 18 shots per game this season or 19 shots per game this season he's definitely not going to take 20 but say he takes 19 they're going to be four shots they're going to be bad shots he took a lot of bad shots last year let's be real about that Tatum and Porzingis are the two most dangerous and most important offensive players and they make a difference right so last year the Celtics were 7.5 points per 100 possessions better with Tatum on the court than off the court that ranked in the 95th percentile via cleaning the glass If you look at the previous year, he was in the 98th percentile. How about Porzingis? On the Wizards last year, they were 6.4 points per 100 better on offense. That's in the 92nd percentile via cleaning the glass. It was 8.7 per 100 on Wednesday night. They were 8.7 points per 100 better on offense with Porzingis on the court. Jalen last year, the Celtics were 3.4 points per 100 possessions worse on offense with Jalen on the court last season. That was in the 29th percentile. This guy was all NBA, and the team was actually worse with him on the floor offensively than off the floor, okay? And I'm not saying that Jalen isn't an unbelievable player, unbelievable score, and all that different type of stuff. I'm just telling you that Porzingis and Tatum generate good offense, and Jalen does not. Tatum and Porzingis together, they generated really good offense, as we saw in the game the other night, okay? When you had Jalen taking 20 shots per game, the team was in the 20 or he was in the 29th percentile in terms of his impact. So Jalen taking 20 shots a game, and I get it, the Celtics are really good last year. That's not a recipe for success. You cannot justify having Jalen doing more stuff than Porzingis. That's just the reality of what Porzingis brings because it's different. So my question is, and this is going to be difficult, what is Joe Mazzulla going to do? Is he going to have him lead the bench mob? You're better off having Drew or Derek White leading the offense 
and Jalen, of course, playing off the ball. Like, there shouldn't be situations where Jalen's handling the ball a whole lot this season because Tatum is a better decision maker, Holiday's a better decision maker, and we all know Derek White's a better decision maker. I just think this is going to be the biggest question for the Celtics all season long. You're talking about your $300 million man, right? I just think that Jalen is going to have to have like a Bosch-like dip in terms of the shot attempts, and I'm just wondering how that goes. Like when Bosch went to the Heat, he knew part of that was going to be in the equation. And look, maybe he didn't think he'd sacrifice as much as he was going to, and maybe he didn't think he was going to get blamed for everything, everything that went wrong. It was Bosch's fault. But my point with that is Bosch knew what he was signing up for in some capacity. He knew that the pecking order was LeBron, Dwayne Wade, then him. Okay. Jalen didn't sign up for it this way. Jalen signed for $300 million. He figured he was going to be number two on this team. He's not. Okay, and I get it. You could say, Brian, you're overreacting to one game. I think Jalen's going to play much better. I'm not saying that we're going to see the same Jalen that we saw on Wednesday night. But what I'm not overreacting to is the fact that Porzingis is way more important to this offense than Jalen Brown is. Kristaps Porzingis makes this offense a lot more dangerous. Like, you can't find too many guys that can do what Porzingis does. And I'm telling you, you can find a lot of guys that do what Jalen does. And this is with me saying Jalen's had a great postseason moments and all that. But you can find guys that can score a lot of points on bad efficiency like Jalen. So it's just, I'm really interested to monitor this situation sort of going forward and see how it goes the rest of the season because it is sort of an interesting set of circumstances. And even down the stretch of that game, I talked about the other night how (laughs) Jalen, they took him out for defense. I thought that was interesting. But more importantly, you notice who wasn't getting the ball down the stretch of the game? Jalen. Last year, he would have got the ball. Even Derek White, like Derek White at times was running the offense down the stretch of the game. Derek White wasn't even on the field last year. Jason Tatum and Kristaps Porzingis in two-man game situations where he's kicking it to Porzingis to take that three. Jalen wasn't getting the ball at the end of the fourth quarter. Just keep that in your mind because everything is rosy for the Celtics right now. Love the opener and it was awesome. But that's the one thing in my opinion that you need to, I don't know why I said my opinion. I'm saying it, so I don't know why I needed to preface it by saying that. But anyway, getting back to my original point is... That's the one thing that you're going to look at and say this season, well, I, I don't know, is Jalen happy? We've already heard whispers in the past that he wanted to leave. He wasn't going to leave when he has $300 million in the table, on the table rather. He had all those interesting comments last year. I just think this is a really interesting situation with the Celtics team. By the way, cannot wait for the Heat game. Not that it makes up for last year if you beat the Heat, but this is sort of like, okay, you had the comeback against the Knicks or you were up big, the Knicks came back and you were able to win in the fourth quarter. That's great. But now you're going up against the team that you sort of, one of the teams in the East that you measure yourself against, and a team that has out-physicaled you in the past. How do you respond on Friday night? Home opener at the Garden. It's going to be electric. I cannot wait for this one. I am fired up. You know how I feel about the Heat. They scare the shit out of me, but I hate them. Okay, so I want the Celtics to win this one big. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, you'll hear from my buddy Lou Merloni. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, you hear him on Nesson calling Red Sox games. You hear him on WEI calling games. It is Lou Merloni. Lou, what's going on, man? The Red Sox actually have somebody taking over for Heim. It took long enough, but it happened, man. We have somebody running the baseball department. And now we can focus on the real stuff, right? Now what, right? Because for so long, it was uh, (laughs) who's going to take this job? I always felt like the timeline, everyone's sort of, we're always impatient, but really they had to, you know, they had another week, 10 days, right? All-star, I mean, the World Series, once it gets over, that's when you want someone in place. So, uh, yeah, finally got it done. Now, like I said, now we can get the things that really matter. Yeah, like I'm being a little bit hyperbolic there. I think that they should have interviewed a ton of candidates because clearly they had to get this one right, considering 
you moved on from Dabrowski after three and a half years, the same thing for Heim. And if you did that again, they had trouble interviewing candidates across the sports to begin with. So I think they did their due diligence. They interviewed a lot of candidates. So I, I, I shouldn't have said that at the beginning, like, finally, we have a guy. I'm glad that they yeah. went through this process of interviewing a ton of candidates, to be honest. Yeah, and, you know, they said at the beginning it was to take time, it was going to be a broad search, and I think it was. Like, I, I don't know if anybody looks at Gabe Kapler, you know, coming out of the dugout as a guy that would lead an organization, right? But it's more of some of it is just bringing pe different people in, I think, and trying to get ideas for what they're thinking. And, you know, sometimes you take ideas or whatever, right? You sort of like, you know, what you're hearing from guys. So, yeah, there was a shitload of guys um, who turned it down. Uh, I, I do... I've talked about it recently, too. I mean, I would say, number one, I think it is a little eye-opening for some people out at Fenway Park. You heard, you know, um, Sam Kennedy talking about it. He actually sounded like everybody and anybody in the game was going to drop everything they're doing to interview for this job or want this job. So, in a sense, I think it was eye-opening. But I also thought, like, the, the flip side of it, like, yeah, there's a lot of people that turned this job down. And people have like really kind of jumped on that and harped on that, that nobody wants to be here. This is how low the Red Sox are. But I never heard any of them make an argument for any of the people that turned it down and, and why the Red Sox lost out, right? Like, right. Mike Hayes is the number one guy the whole time, in my opinion. And I think if everybody knows his personal history and what's going on with his family and his kids and how old they are and eighth grade to high school, you know, after losing your mother, you know, tragically, you know, um, you're not going to uproot your family. You know, so we leveraged that contract and he got a better deal. There's a few guys that were interesting to me, but for the most part, a lot of the people that bowed out or or people were ranting and raving that they couldn't believe they didn't want to interview it. I'm glad they didn't because I wanted nothing to do with most of them. Yeah. And before we get into Breslow in particular, you think about some of the guys that passed, like you said, uh, obviously Hazen, that was for personal reasons. And yeah. it's working out pretty well for him. His team's going to the World Series. So that's a pretty good situation. Not to mention, they got yeah. one of the best young players in the game in Corbin Carroll. That's not a bad job right now. But some of the other guys, like James Click, decided he didn't want to, he took his name out. Gomes never, Brandon Gomes from the Dodgers, never yeah. really wanted it. So when you look at that list, and Chris Antonetti's the guy that I said like right away, but he was never interested in the job. He wants to stay in Cleveland and do his whole thing with the Guardians. So to your point, like Gabe Kapler, that one to me was just like, wait, hold on. This guy just got fired from his second managerial job, and now he's <laughs> qualified to be a general manager, which is, yeah. in my opinion, a more difficult job to do. You want him to do that? Like, I just, that made no sense to me whatsoever. Neil Huntington, can anybody yeah. look up the Garrett Cole trade or the Glassnow Meadows trade, right? I mean, and you think right. about it, they got Archer, and Boz was in that trade as well. So I, I had no idea why that was something that was in consideration as well the one guy that did pique my interest was thad levine just because lou you'd be shocked by this he's very analytically driven so i was into yeah. that but they're like out of the guys that were up for the job or at least that they were interested in it doesn't really feel like none of them i'm like oh damn i can't believe they missed out on that guy is that sort of like the same feeling you get yeah and that's kind of what i was getting at it was just like like you're talking like you know thad levine you know falvey didn't even want to get interviewed right and to be honest right. with you that I want nothing to do with and and i know metric man i know you love the analytics and the game <laughs> is like, we understand the game is analytics the problem that i had was you know i remember doing those twins games and talking to some of the announcers broadcasters people around the twins and you're pulling their hair out without their analytics was affecting how games were managed you know with rocco mm. it was i don't know if they led the league in pinch hitting opportunities but i saw three hole hitters being pulled in the third inning um and it was <laughs> 
I, I never understood it. So it was, I think analytics, obviously I, I believe in them. I believe in, you know, helping pitchers shape their pitches and figure out how to get hitters out. Same thing with hitters mechanically, biomechanics, whatever it might be for pitchers. I believe in all of that. Scouting, help me understand what the pitch is going to do. Help me understand what my weaknesses are, what I got to work on. I get it. But when it starts coming down to the field and you're watching the game going, what the hell is that? And the only explanation is because it was the plan before the game started. I want nothing to do with that. So, and there's, you know, Kim Ng, you know, unemployed, didn't want to apply. I can only imagine what the response would be in this city if they announced yesterday that Kim Ng was going to be the, the president of baseball operations. Like, people would probably wouldn't have been happy. But they, that, they, that's what I'm saying. Like, people were talking about got, people in, that were up for this job that didn't want it, that would lose their minds if they got it. Like, Click was interesting to me. But from what I understand, I'm pretty sure Hein Bloom gave him his first job in professional baseball. <laughs> yeah. But people are actually upset that Sam Fold. You know, like, what was the difference between Breslow and Sam Fold, other than maybe one-year experience? And I'm pretty sure that conversation with Dave Dombrowski uh, ended pretty quickly when he said, Dave, what do you think? Should I take this job? Right? Um, Brandon Gomes, you know, that's another one in that CY, Chris Young, Breslow kind of category, right? GM. And I, I don't know what his situation is. Hell, maybe he's got a house out in Malibu. He's living in L.A. they got a great team. You know, I, I don't know. It's just There was just a lot of people. Like John Daniels? Let me ask you, Brian, do you want a guy that was willing to trade for Chris Sale, pick up two and a half years of his contract and still give you two prospects in return? Like, are we upset that that guy's not running this team? No, absolutely not. And I'm with you, like, on the Kim Ang thing. I I never, I understood that she ran a baseball department, so it made sense to at least see if she was interested in the job. But I went through it a couple of weeks ago on the pod, or a week and a half ago when she actually, they decided to, they were going to hire somebody on top of her, and she didn't want to do that in terms of she didn't want to be number two in a baseball department. You look through the resume. I mean, they got murdered on the Luis Arise deal. He was 50th mm-hmm. in war. Pablo Lopez was 10th in war among starting pitchers. Like, that guy's a legitimate, really good pitcher. And you look through her resume, it wasn't great. So I, I wasn't in on hiring her. So I do think, like, when you think about it from the Breslow situation, I mentioned this the other day, but I'd like to get your take on this because you're more qualified to answer this than me, somebody that played in Major League Baseball. So I think about it in terms of Bloom, where, okay, if he delivers the message, the he's got all the analytics, to your point about, like, the Twins, right? And he's delivering yep. this message to, say, Alex Cora, somebody in the coaching staff. It's not received the same way as a guy, Craig Breslow. That's why I like the combination of, oh, he's a former player, but he's also into the analytics. So when he presents these situations, it's a guy that also played in Major League Baseball. And fair or unfair... I do think there's a different perception, and I do think the coaching staff will be more receptive to a guy that actually played Major League Baseball as well. Like, I think that's important in this whole process, not to mention the fact that he knows the market, right? I mean, that's a very important thing. He knows how much the fan base wants to win. So I think that all factors into it as well. And I do think that makes that made Himes fair or unfair. I think Heim was at a disadvantage when it comes to that because, first of all, he never had experiences running a different baseball department. And secondarily, you're dealing with a World Series-level manager, and they don't want just, like, all these numbers, right? So I do think that Breslow can deliver that message better than Heim could ever deliver. And it's not Heim's fault. It's just he, he wasn't as qualified. He didn't play. No, I, I agree 100%. So the, with the Breslow hiring, there's good and bad. Right. And I think there would have been good and bad with any candidate out there. There was not a perfect candidate. Everyone's like, I just want somebody who is GM to make decision maker in a big market who has won in the past. And it's like, that's great. I love the resume. Is there a name out there? Because you're not getting Anthopolis. 
You know what I mean? Not getting Freeman. You try to get Hazy, not getting him. You know, you're not going to get Dombrowski, obviously. You know, so it's like, so there's there's good and bad. You know, the bad I, I would start with is just the inexperience, right? And let's see who he brings with him. Remember, like Theo right. came here, he had like Bill of Joy. You know, let's go out there and find a guy that's maybe not qualified to be the you know the number one guy because he's been out of baseball for a while. But we need a special assistant. We need somebody assisting him, advisor type of thing for Greg Breslow to kind of get through the inexperience. That is the concern. Okay, there's no question about it. The positive though that you just mentioned to me is what I love about this. You know, because let's face it, the game is you know uh, another you know the term obviously of calling smart people in the game is nerds. So the game is about nerds. I want a nerd that played baseball. I want a nerd that played the big <laughs> league. I want a nerd that was in that clubhouse in spring training that looked around his team and said, we don't have enough, you know, or we do have enough and feel good about it. I know what that feeling is like. I want a nerd, you know, a guy that out there making decisions come trade deadline that knows exactly what those people are feeling when the GM just brings in Luis Arias, you know, or goes out and gets a native Aldi, right? Like I want to know that different feeling. And he does. You know, he's got that baseball perspective. He's got a better understanding of the clubhouse dynamic. And I do think that's one of the weaker areas that I had, you know, as personal as he was. And yeah. listen, I, I love Time Bloom. Like personally, I think he's a great guy. I wish him all the best. I hope he goes to another organization and kills it and maybe learns from this. Um, but not understanding how the clubhouse works, um, you know, be able to communicate, which he tried more this year. I know he's on the road trying to meet with guys and try to be more personable. But when it comes to Breslow, much like we saw with Chris Young, you know, look at that guy at the deadline. You know, he's sitting yeah. there. He's a pitcher. He's watching his team going, we, we can't. Our bullpen is brutal. So I go and I'm going to go get Chapman. What was that? Early July, June, whatever it was. And guys went down. They said, well, Texas is desperate, right? They lost to Grom. You know, the, you know, Valdi is hurt. They're just trying to stay afloat. It's like, well, I can get Nate back. I'm going to get Scherz. I'm going to get Montgomery. And look where they are. Like, that's a guy that gets it. You know, a team looks around and says, we've we got a shot, you know, of winning, and then goes out and delivers. Yeah, it's a great point, too, because he just kept going for it. What if you didn't get Montgomery, right? If you just got Scherzer, then yeah. you're not in the World Series, right? By the way, imagine if a team traded Harrison Bader for Jordan Montgomery. I mean, that, that oh. would be a tough trade. I, I can't think of the team that did that, but. <laughs> I would say but, this, you know, it was, it was funny. Because like early on in his career, I wasn't a big fan of Jordan Montgomery. There were some arm issues and, and whatever it was. And I'm like, the Yankees are relying on, on this guy to kind of – they brought in Cole. I'm like, they're, they're weak in their, in their rotation. As the years went on, I started watching him pitch, obviously, more in the East. I'm like, Man, this guy can just pitch. I never, from day one, and I, I, I never understood that trade when it came across. I never got it. Yeah, I'm like, you was- are getting up in a pitcher that has a sub-4 ERA now, basically his entire career, for – an outfielder like that has potential, you know, and I'm like, you already got the young arm that's got potential. And I never understood that. I get why St. Louis moved him. He's a guy that I, you know, I remember after watching him in Texas, I think when the minute the season was over, he'd be my first signing, you know, Jordan Montgomery. That was before he's doing what he's doing in the playoffs. And I love him. It's just, when I look at Montgomery or look at Noel, it's a concern that, you know, you wonder, well, is Dabrowski really going to let Noel leave? I mean, that's not his M.O., you know, and, and if you're Jordan Montgomery and you're in a World Series, do you really want to leave? You know, you got a pretty good team. So it's going to be hard getting those guys out of there. Yeah, hold that thought because I do want to get to that when we get pa- past the Breslow portion of this. So yeah. I mentioned that great athletic story the other day from Jen McCaffrey and Chad Jennings just about 
the crazy results the Cubs got from their young pitchers over the past couple of years. Basically, they couldn't develop any pitchers. And then mm-hmm. they bring in Breslow and they start developing pitchers like crazy, which makes me think, oh, yeah, this is something that uh, maybe the Red Sox would want to do because Bayo's like it's a miracle that he developed because they haven't really had success. I mean, who's the last great Red Sox starting pitcher they developed? Probably John Lester, right? Because you yeah. know, Buckholz was unbelievably talented, but he couldn't even the 13 year where they won the World Series. He's like 11 and one. He's probably going to he's like on his way to being a Cy Young candidate, and he goes down with the injury. So he was really good. He just couldn't stay healthy. Erod, even him, that was the Andrew Miller deal. So that's not somebody that they brought in. And Erod had his issues and all that. He used to point out how often he tipped, which is still an issue for Erod. I think that's the reason Trevor's story had like three hits his his first game back and then didn't hit after that. But anyway, so I was looking at this. I mentioned this like right when they moved on from high. If you go since 2020, the Red Sox are 23rd in ERA. They're 18th and FIP. They're 21st in home runs per nine innings. And if you look at the recent World Series teams, right, this is sort of, to me, like young starting pitching is kind of like the quarterback on a rookie contract where you have cheap labor from an important position and then you can spend elsewhere. Although it, it doesn't really work out for the Patriots with Mac Jones because maybe the quarterback's not that great and maybe the guy putting the players around him hasn't done a great job. But you get my point. Like, other teams yeah. have done it. The Eagles did it last year when they went to the Super Bowl. Pat Mahomes early in his career, right? But anyway, Dodgers, they win in 2020, the COVID year. After Kershaw, the next four guys in inning, innings, May, Urias, Goslin, Walker Bueller. May was pre-arbitration, just north of a million uh, just north of half a million. Goslin pre-arbitration, just north of half a million. Bueller was making just north of 600000 Urias was at $1 million. And those guys were all pivotal for them. The 2021 Braves, second inning, innings, Max Freed. Third is Ann Anderson. And Inoa's fifth. And those guys, the guy that was making the most money is Freed at $3.5 million. The rest of them making nothing. Even going back to last year, the Astros, Valdez... 201 innings in a third, most on the team. I don't know what happened to that guy in the playoffs this year, by the way. Urquidy was third. Luis Garcia, your buddy, who uh, would go to the hair very often in his outings, was fourth. Christian Javier was fifth. Valdez, one of the best pitchers in baseball that season, and he was one year for $3 million. Everybody else's 1.2 mil, 750,000, 750,000. So I do think this is pivotal that Breslow can not only identify guys, but what we've seen, and you can't really argue with the results, they have developed some really, and they have guys on the way that are absolute studs in their farm system. I do think this is something that even going back to the past decade or so, the Red Sox have not been able to hit on this. So that's one of the things I'm optimistic about is, hey, maybe they can develop some young starting pitchers, which would be nice for a change. Yeah, which is when his name first came up, like it was like, okay, I, you know, they have to get him in this organization somehow, some capacity, whether it's, same job or what? Now, obviously, he's the head guy. That's the number one job, right? And and I should say that because it's always about the big league focus. You know, it's always about going out and acquiring, having your big league team. But at the same time, you know, you, that job, you got to multitask. You got to cover everything. You got to develop that pitching program. You got to bring whatever whatever it was that they sort of discovered and bring it over. And isn't that what we all want? Like I sat there all the time thinking, okay, what what the hell is Tampa doing? Right. Like, what are yeah. they doing? Like, why that everybody and anybody that goes to them gets much better? Like, there's so much analytics out there. You almost feel like it's 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 all an even playing field, but it's obviously not. Right. There's obviously something that is going on, you know, whether it's like they had like I remember that, that yeah, the report from the Cubs. Right. All those guys with velocity 
they started losing velocity, you know, as, yeah. as their career on the minor leagues. Now, all of a sudden, they're increasing velocity. Stuff is being rated much higher as well. So um, that is the edge, as you mentioned it. Some of all those teams, you know, you got Bayo. Well, that's good. But you want two or three Bayos in your rotation, don't you? I mean, you want you want two or three homegrown guys. Then you go out and make one big splash. You don't want to sit there. You can't. I know everybody wants to go out and sign, sign, sign. You can't live off signing like just three free agent pitchers and spend a hundred million dollars. Like it's just that's not what you how you want to live. You know, you want to do what you're talking about. Some of those other teams drafting and develop. And the Dodgers you even mentioned you know Miller right because that's this year. Like they got another one that's an absolute yeah. stud. So um that that's one of the areas where hopefully you start seeing some of those results you know i do believe one of the things that really killed the red sox last year quietly i mean there was many but on the lower scale that isn't talked about enough is murphy is walter is mata right like you were supposed to have three of your best pitching prospects in triple a which is ideal ready to come up and you would hope two of them would freaking pop and if two of them did pop then you could have not had an opener for six weeks, right? Like two openers for six weeks. And you could have saved a bullpen, and it could have looked a little bit different. Unfortunately, they all took steps backwards. That's what kills you. Yeah, maybe you could have avoided the Bear Claw game, which will always be remembered yeah. here as the Bear Claw game, where the season ended. Critical mm-hmm. game, you're winning, you got to bring in Bear Claw. And <laughs> right. I guess you had what, basically... Jansen and Martin were available, and that was pretty much it. There was somebody else that was available, but he I forget who it was off the top of my head, but he also stunk. Like, it, it, there was not, like, a big uh, – you couldn't look at it and say, this guy's way better than Bear Claw or anything along those lines. But anyway, that'll always – I'll always remember the Bear Claw game. I'm like, what the hell is going on? I do think that, like, that whole weekend of, like, Mookie, and then after that it's the Astros, and then you have this situation with Bear Claw. I just thought that was an ugly set of circumstances – for Haim Bloom. So, yeah, I'm interested to see what Breslow can do. Like, even Tanner Houck. Like, I'm not saying he's going to be developed now, but with his stuff, Lou, he should be a better pitcher. Like, and I understand he had the big injury this year, and that was really scary. But with that type of stuff, he should be way better. Like, you should have been able to at least get a competent starter out of this guy. He can't go through the order a second time through. Now, the ship has sailed on him as a starter, in my opinion. But all these guys, like Whitlock, just keep him in the bullpen because he's going to get hurt if he's a starting pitcher. But... We've seen, like, going back to Darwinson Hernandez. The guy can't throw a strike. Maybe if they had, like, good people. In the, and, and look, maybe Darwinson was just a lost cause. At one point, he was the number one pitching prospect in the organization. But it is good knowing that you have a guy that put a program in place in a different organization, had success coming here, which is one of the Red Sox' biggest problems. Now, the other thing I wanted to ask you about in terms of Breslow is the Red Sox last year, I mean, you tweeted out multiple times, since 2020, they're last in baseball and outs above average. This year, it wasn't even close between them and like the second worst team. The Cubs last year, they were 12th. This past season, or excuse me, since 2020, they've been 12th. This past season, they were really good as well. Dansby Swanson, their big signing, led all of Major League Baseball with 20 outs above average. Nico Horner, their second baseman, tied for eighth at 14. He was second among second baseman. So that front office there, they signed some good defensive players. So... Here's the question. Did the Red Sox actually hire somebody that cares about defense? Yeah, that'd be nice. I think they might have. I hope. <laughs> Here's the thing. You asked me, okay, and, and this is where the experience comes into it. If you were to ask any pitcher, former pitcher that's ever played in the big leagues and say that, do you think defense is important? What do you think they're going to say? You know what I mean? It's like, damn right. Like if I get, if I make my pitch, if I drop that sinker down away, I get that ground ball to third, a ground ball to short. I need to double play. I need to, I need to be an out. 
You know what I mean? So now you're bringing in, again, this is where we start going to pitching and saying, you know, look at the Texas Rangers, you know, defensively. You know, CY is out there looking at those guys saying, if I'm pitching, I need a team behind me, right? So it's, yeah, it's important. You know, I think pitchers also look at bullpens and they say, I need a bullpen. It's probably why CY was losing his mind down in Texas. Because once we know how important wins are, we want to, you know, close this game up. But defensively, they have to go, I don't care. If they could sign two or three $30 million pitchers and they don't improve their defense, they're going to matter. Right now, story I think definitely helps. Rafi's yeah. got a lot of work. Rafi's got a lot of work to do. He's got to change some bad habits, you know. And they keep harping on the whole pre-pitch movement stuff, and it's it it just gets frustrating when I hear like you know Casas pre-pitch movement, you know, like the little hop, being ready, you know, being on your toes, being able to improve your range. Same thing with Rafi, and it frustrates me more so with Rafi because he's been in the big leagues now for five or six years. You know, like this is something that we should be dealing with. But Casas, I look at it, and it's like, you know, there was this negative hop backwards. You know, when he did hop at his feet, he'd actually hop a little backwards. And I'm like, how do you get to the big leagues? Dude? You know, like, I know <laughs> we all focused on hitting. We're hitting, hitting, hitting. You know, he's improving. What do you hit this month? Call him up. And it's like, at some point, A-ball, double-A, and triple-A, aren't we teaching this kid how to properly get ready pre-pitch? Like, how do you get there and not do that? And Rafi's still flat-footed. You know, like he doesn't have a hop. And I think that affects him range on one side especially. So, um especially to his left, but it's, he needs to improve. I want to see, you know, like every year, you know, the, you bring in a JD Martinez, right. To teach the team that they can be more aggressive on the first pitch. We can actually swing the first pitch. Then you bring in Justin Turner and you change it and say, okay, we got to teach these guys. You need to have quality at bats, right? Two strikes battle, put the ball in play. I want a defensive guy on this roster. Like I want, you know, whatever utility infielder it is. And I've mentioned the name of Gio Urshela before. You know, um, I've heard amazing things about this guy as a leader in the clubhouse. Well, I know he's a great defensive third baseman. You know, I don't think he's played much second base. But a guy on this roster, you, you know, you always try to bring in one person that's trying to, like, send the message. A defensive-minded guy, utility guy, whatever it may be, starting second baseman that focus, that's, like, more of a defensive focus. Because I just I, – I think that it kind of – you need it. You need guys to go out there – Talk to one another, improve this defense because it's you can't win. Like you, you could have went out and traded for two great arms at the deadline. You defensively, you were going to lose ball games. And that was the reason why you weren't going to win. Yeah, and that's one of the most disappointing things you mentioned, Rafi. So last year, minus nine defensive runs saved, twentieth to twenty thirty third baseman, nineteen errors, obviously the most. I just don't know if he can play third base. And the thing that aggravates me about Rafi is you look at Austin Riley with the Braves, who's getting paid a hundred million dollars less. Like they were smart to get ahead of that deal. This year, his offensive numbers are better than Rafi, and he's an elite defensive player. And if you're making that type of money, you can't justify paying that type of money to a DH. And if you look at sort of this team going forward, Casas is going to be here, Rafi's going to be here, and the other guy that's going to be here, you would think, and I'm wondering if they decide, hey, maybe we put him on the market, is Yoshida. Yoshida is an absolutely atrocious outfielder, 15th of 19 left fielders in defensive runs saved. And because of that, like his war was 115th out of 133 qualified players. And his on-base percentage yeah. wasn't even that good. We heard about the walks, 5.9%. That was 110th. So I just don't know if you can go into a season with, essentially, he should be a DH. But can your DH be a guy that is just somebody that's not going to hit for any power whatsoever? That's why I think that if you do keep Yoshida, which I, I haven't heard anything like, I'm not saying they're putting him on the market or anything along those lines, and we don't even know what Breslow's plan is, but Rafi's going to have to play third base, especially if Yoshida's on the team, yeah. right? Because you think about it from an outfield perspective, Duran's going to be back as well, and not to say he's a gold glover, but he improved immensely defensively from where he was 
a season ago. But do you think that they should consider like shopping Yoshida? Yeah, I think um, I think you kind of open to anything, aren't you? You know, I mean, even it was funny all this Juan Soto talk. I don't know, like we had a bunch of people going at it, and I just simply just I don't know, ran out of the cage a little bit and just put up. They were talking about they would want Casas. I'm like, would you trade Casas for Soto? People are like, no way. Like it was like 90 percent no, you know. And I'm like, I'm just just throwing out there like wacky stuff, you know. It's like guy's one of the great hitters of all time. Devers can go to first base. You know, I don't want to give up Costas. He's a good player, but we're talking about Hall of Fame, you know, um, and Juan Soto. So if those three guys aren't there, there's some wacky shit going on, right? I mean, if Costas in here and Devers in here and you're shitty or something freaking weird is going on. Oh, big, you know, as far as making trades. Uh, War is never going to be kind to Yoshida. I don't think War is going to be kind to Costas either, you know, because nope. of, you know, the different metrics and the speed, the lack of speed on the base paths. Like, that's a huge component of it as well. So, Yoshida looks to me like a guy that can play left field 50, 60 times a year, right? And then he's going to DH the rest. And those 50 or 60 games he plays in left, you allow other guys, whether it's Devers, whether it's, you know, uh, Casas or whoever the hell you want. Um, Ref Schneider, I have no idea, like DHing, you know, to get people off their feet, things like that. So that's how I kind of look Yoshida next year. It'd be tough to kind of – I wonder what kind of impact it would be if you sign a guy from Japan to like a five-year deal and after year one you trade him. You know yeah. what I mean? In America, that's we're more cutthroat, and we would just be like, yeah, "That's business, just the way it is." Over there, it's maybe viewed a little differently. You know, whether it's yeah, that's a good point in terms of like you the know? future signing players from Japan. That's a good point. I just yeah. I just look at the defense, and I'm like, I don't know if you can survive with those three guys on the field mm-hmm. together. I think Chapman's available this offseason too. He's a free agent, still a good defensive player, and hit for a ton of power last year, but. I want to get into sort of the pitching. I think they need two starting pitchers, and I like the back end of the bullpen, Martin and Jansen. They could probably use somebody in the middle there, but you, you're pretty good about For the first time in, like, forever, you feel pretty good about there. So you have Bayo. Sale, we know there's health concerns. I like Crawford. I mean, he's done a bunch of different roles. Whitlock shouldn't be starting. Tanner shouldn't be starting. Maybe you put Tanner on the market, see what you can get for him. And the reality is he posted a 501 ERA. He's just, he's not a, he's not, at this point, as I was mentioning earlier, he's more of a frustrating pitcher to me than maybe anybody else because the stuff is there. He just, he can't harness it, right? So you look at the free agents, you have Yamamoto out there, who's like the big star in Japan, as we were just talking about with Yoshida. You have Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, Aaron Nola. So Snell, the one issue there is the walks, but that's the reason that, I mean, he's, he's he had 32 starts, but he's 24th in innings because he walks the ballpark, but he's one of the nastiest pitchers in the base, in baseball, second in strikeout rate. Noah did not have a great regular season, but he's still 10th in innings, and the Sox starters were 27th. Like, this isn't even a metric. This is like an old, this is just, hey, you, we need innings out of the starting rotation. The Red Sox couldn't get innings. Noah, if you go back, really, since the start of 2017, he's second in innings behind only Garrett Cole. So he's been reliable. I know he's getting up there in terms of entering his, what, his 31-year-old season next year. Montgomery, we mentioned him earlier. He was great for the Rangers after coming over from the trade. has been great in the postseason as well. And then the other thing I would say is maybe you can be creative because Cease had a down year, and Cease still has two years of club control after this one. Strikeout rate was still pretty good 20 really good actually ninth in baseball despite the fact that had some control issues that's always going to be part of his game the slider is still nasty but the thought is you have Breslow you can sort of fix what was going wrong with them last season and I do think maybe that's something I think you could sign one and maybe trade for and I think you'd be creative with this where 
and I, I'm, I don't want to like get people upset about this, but with the Mookie trade, part of the reason you didn't get as much back in return is they take on David Price, right? So yeah. I do wonder if it's like, hey, there is this guy that is in year two of a $75 million contract that used to play for the Red Sox and Andrew Benintendi, who's coming off a really bad year. I'm not defending his year. But if you eat that contract, do you have to give up less in prospects to go after a guy like Dylan Cease? Because I do think that's the the most important thing for the Red Sox this offseason is they need two more starting pitchers because you just can't live the way that you did the past few seasons. Yeah, no, I, I would agree. You know, those... Those four names you mentioned, I think, are the top three agents, right? And if I was to put them in order, you know, I'd, I'd probably say Yamamoto was number one and simply because of the age factor, right? And I know that's probably bigger unknown, but I think it's translating. The game is translating better. We saw what Senga did this year with the Mets. He was fantastic. Uh, number two for me would be Montgomery. And it would uh, it, he and Nola would be like 2A, 2B kind of thing. And just that thing you pointed out. Like, those guys take the ball. Montgomery's had a sub-4 ERA every single year of his career, essentially. Nola's an innings-eating guy and obviously can pitch at a very high level. They'd be, two, they'd be the next two guys. Snell would be last on that list simply because I know he is nasty, but, you know, the only year, really, he's kind of gone 32 starts and anywhere close to innings is the free agent year, this past one. You know, like, I, I don't want to pay top dollar for a guy that goes 130 innings every year, which is pretty much what he does in his career. You know what I mean? So I, I – I need, you need 32 starts, like you just said, which is sitting there sitting there going, innings. The innings are very, very important, which is one reason, by the way, if he's still here, Nick Pavetta is in rotation. Like, you know, and I know he sucked at the beginning of the year, but I think that that slider, the new slider has really changed how we can approach hitters. We've seen it. It's, it wasn't luck. It was just different stuff. And he's the only guy going into this past year that I said, the only man in your rotation you can count on to get innings from is Nick Pavetta because he's the only one that's done it recently. Right. And that was Bayo and Paxton and Sale and Whitlock and all these guys. Um, so I'd put him back in there as well. So the other issue is like you were talking about before. Like I always feel like there's three moves to be made. Is it two free agent pitchers and a big trade for a right-handed bat? Um, because there aren't any right-handed bats, you know, out there to acquire. And the, one, two of the best right-handed bats out there are Turner and Duval, you know, in free agency. There's yeah. some lefties, obviously. And, and I, you know, I like what you're talking about with Cease because I think, obviously, I think he's nasty. The team that I'm really interested in that could be this year's version of the Miami Marlins of last offseason is the Seattle um, Mariners. You know, like that's a team that needs bats. Like, that, you know, like the Marlins needed bats. You talk about that arise from Lopez deal. Like, you got Kirby. You know, you got Gilbert. You know, you got a really good rotation out there. Then they're just searching for that another bat or two to kind of go with that team to try to help them out. Like, is that a team you get involved with? and try to pull one of those arms away because, mm. you know, as you saw last year, like the trade market, like the the Marlins wanted a big league bat return. That's why Costas' name was coming up, right? And it's like they don't want guys in A-ball anymore, right? They just don't. They want guys in double-A at least or triple-A big league ready, young big league hitters. So you finally you have some prospects that are double-A, triple-A and saw the big leagues this year. So I'm wondering if you could work something out there, but – that's my whole thing, like three moves. Is it big free agent signing followed by like a Michael Lorenzen, smaller big you know, free agent signing, you know, and then like a trade for a right-handed bat, to kind of, you know, a big one to kind of put with Devers and, and Casas and maybe Story in that like six-hole type of situation. So, but it'll be interesting. They need arms. There's no question about it. Yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see like what Preslow's plan is, but I agree with you. I mean, they could certainly use a right-handed bat and – some of those pitchers in Seattle, you'd certainly like him, them here Ooh. on the Red Sox just to, at the very least, eat up innings. And 
I mean, they really, they were sellers at the deadline. And because their pitching completely turned it around, they made this run to the postseason, which is remarkable. I know that they, I mean, wait, did they make the postseason? They lost right day, or they got eliminated in like the last day of the regular season, yeah, right? Or so, yeah, they were like yeah, battling. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Sorry. I got confused there. But yeah, they, they made a run late. Like everybody thought they were going to get into the postseason and they sort of fell at the end there. So one guy I wanted to get to is Verdugo because I just wonder, can you get anything for him at this point where he's entering his final year of arbitration? He slugged 421, 82nd of 133 hitters. He had a 311 on base percentage against lefties and a 298 slugging percentage, which was 144th out of 146 qualifiers. So it's a corner outfielder that is a good defensive corner outfielder. We found out this year when he actually cared about defense, he got into better shape and all that. But I just wonder, like, he he's a corner outfielder. His career high in home runs is 13. He doesn't hit for any power. I would have moved him last year at the deadline. I think the Red Sox were, like, probably surprised at how little was out there for Alex Verdugo based on the profile of the player. I, I would imagine that they move on from him this offseason, but I could also see a possibility where there's just not a lot out there for Alex Verdugo, right? Because, I mean, what's really that enticing about him? And I don't want to say, like, he's unprofessional, but the fact that you need to be motivated by your manager and called out by your manager after the season to improve the next year that's like a major character issue. You should you shouldn't need that to happen. And he even he even talked about it. Like he was pissed off about it. It's like, dude, if you did your job, the manager wouldn't call you out. Yeah, if he finished the year the way he played the first three months, I think you absolutely could have got something from him. You know, because you people could have looked at that and said, okay, there it is. But instead, it turned the discussion turned into, yep, that's what he is. You know, I mean, and I think the whole perception of him sort of changed because it was just a a regular season for Alex Verdugo, like his whole career, you know, and I still think that there's more there. Maybe somebody can get it out of him. I think they'll try to deal him. Um, but you're right. Like, I don't think it's, like I said, if you finished the year like you did the first three months, it could be a one-for-one -one deal. You know, it could be a, it could be an arise for Lopez, right? If he goes out there and continue yeah. to hit 300 and, and have an OPS at 800 and have, win the gold glove in right field, there's some value there. But unfortunately, it turned in the second half, and it pretty much turned right when he when it was announced he wasn't on the All-Star team. I think if you go back and look at that date from the rest of the season, like that was that was it for him. Um, you're gonna have to package somebody with him. You know, what I mean, you, if you if you move him to really get something that you really need, you're gonna have to put him with a prospect or two. You know, I was surprised that they didn't move on from him at the deadline. I think there were deals to be made. He didn't get moved, and you know. But the other thing with me too is, with all that being said, I think there will be an effort. There will be like testing the waters and Verdugo plus so and so. What can we get? That type of thing. He doesn't have to be moved. You know what I mean? I know there's some frustration there maybe with his manager and how he goes about it every single day and had to motivate him and bench him a couple of times. I get it. But this isn't, you know, Mookie. You know, this isn't, uh, you know, uh, Bogarts where you sit there and say, okay, it's his last year of his deal. You either move him or extend him because, you you got you know, you, you don't want to not get anything for him. It's Alex Verdugo. That, that's you a good know, point, you just, yeah. You, you play the year out. Like, you're, you're a team that's looking to improve their defense and he's about to win a gold glove. And – you know, you're going to get worse defensively. So it's, you know, I remember even thinking about that with Toronto because Verdugo's name was coming up when we were playing the Blue Jays. I'm watching Chapman play third. And I'm like, you know, you don't have to extend them. They don't have to, they don't have to extend Chapman. They don't have to trade Chapman. They have a good baseball team. They're going to try to win with Chapman. When the year's up, he's going to leave, you know? And if that's the case, then so be it. So I think they could still, that could still happen as well with Verdugo this year. Yeah, that's a good point. If the deal isn't a good deal, don't just make the deal to make the deal because he's still... 
an everyday player, even if he's a flawed everyday player, he certainly can, yeah. you can justify playing him every day. And as you said, I mean, he's got a real chance to win a gold glove. I love the point that you made earlier too. Oh, Pavetta. Like he's had his issues in terms of walking guys. He had the bad start to last season, but the guy has been dependable. He at least goes out there and he competes. I love his mentality. He always comes into spring training. The guy seems like he's in outstanding shape. He's always pissed when he doesn't pitch well. So I do like Pavetta. And I'm surprised, like, he's a guy that, what, he's got one year left, and then you're going to have to make a decision on him. I like Pavetta. I think he's solid for this team. The one prospect I'm wondering if this is sort of the offseason, maybe they should contemplate trading him, depending on what you get back, is Nick York. Because I just don't feel like there's going to be a lot of room for him going forward. And I do feel like if you wait on York... The value may go down, right? Because eventually teams are going to say, well, he's kind of blocked. Like, there's nowhere that he's eventually going to play. I will say the one prospect I really liked this year that came up was Abreu. Abreu, like, unbelievable plate discipline, a lot of power. I mean, that is one trade that Heimblum definitely got right. Like, to get rid of Vasquez. And look, Valdez is an absolutely atrocious fielder, Lou. I mean, you must get so aggravated watching that guy in the field. But definitely worth taking a shot on two prospects for Christian Vasquez. No, that was a very good trade. Actually, you know, um, and I know people lost their minds with Vasquez because, quite frankly, people just, you know, they lose their minds over no matter what the Red Sox do a lot of times. But they had more to do probably with Vasquez when he looked back, probably had the best two months of his career with the Boston Red Sox right before he was traded. Like, it looked like he was just figuring it out, you know, I and mean, he was becoming a free agent. But um, I think if you go, if you turn the clock back months from before that or the year before that, you could sit there and say, this guy became a 240, 250 hitter. I don't know if he called a great game. You know, defensively, he wasn't a gold glover. Um, he was extremely streaky. Like, it was just like, okay, I think you're ready to move on. You can find something better. So they they did. And I think actually with Wong and Reese McGuire, they gave you everything that, you know, Vasky would have given you. So um, that's not a bad thing, you know, at all. I agree with you with Abreu. I think he's a starting outfielder, you know, in the big leagues. Like, it's really impressive. It's a real mature approach. You know, Valdez has showed signs. He can obviously hit, but... I'm sorry. I mean, you gotta you, you gotta be able to play defense. You know, at, <laughs> no, at, at an, bad at, at an average level, and he got better. You know, he started making some you know more of the routine plays. You know, but I just you know I, I don't know. I just want a glove guy there. I want a glove guy there that can turn two and kind of change the vibe because all the other positions are kind of took you know are, are hopefully going to be the bats, right? So, yeah. um, but Abreu can play, and that's one of the things too. When you start talking about moving on from a guy like Verdugo, you sit there saying, okay, well there you go. You know, I like to see. I would like to have seen him in right field a little bit more, um, but obviously Alex was playing right and used that arm. So uh, those guys, I, I I liked. As far as Nick York goes, I agree with you hundred percent. You know, and and I've never really seen too much of him. I've seen him in spring training. I talked to some people, you know, about him, and and I was really surprised because didn't he get voted like the best defensive second baseman in his league? Yeah, because I felt like it was just bat first infielder, you know, and second base going to try to get by. Like, that was kind of like an impression that I always felt. And I don't know if that defense improved. But, you know, you can't always put all your eggs in one basket. You know, with a guy like Marcelo Meyer, I guess anything could happen there. But you got to believe he's coming to shortstop stories, going to second base. And what are we doing with Nick York? Well, let's improve our big league ball club by using him in a trade. Yeah, I, I love Abreu, too. Like, the, the power is real, man. Like, yeah. that is – he's got easy power. And the other thing, like you mentioned, too, is – I'm just thinking about this as we're talking is Heim Bloom like did Breslow some favors here, right? Like even though Heim Bloom wasn't well received, like you got Roman Anthony coming up in a couple of years. I mean, a lot of people like Roman Anthony more than Meyer. So at least like the farm system now, the pitching isn't as deep as the positional groups, but at least you got like 
a farm system to work with, right? I mean, that's certainly going to help Breslow. Hey, Lou, before I let you go, I don't know why people are like complaining about this World Series. Like, I get it, like the networks, I guess, or Fox, because it's like, oh yeah, you'd like to have Philadelphia, but for guys like me and you, we're gonna watch yeah. either way. Like, I don't, I don't give a shit that it's Arizona and it's Texas, and Dallas is a big market to begin with. I'm excited for the World Series. I, I do think that the Rangers, as they are, should be heavy favorites in this. But what do you think? I mean, is this gonna be a deep World Series, or do you think this is sort of a coronation for? Nate Evaldi and the Rangers. So, I mean, I can't really doubt the Diamondbacks at this point. I didn't think they'd win game six. I didn't oh. think they'd win game seven, and they continue to do it. It's kind of amazing. Yeah, I haven't picked the Diamondbacks in any series. You know what I mean? And they just keep they keep doing it. So, I'm with you. Like, you and I, you know, guys, people that love baseball are going to watch the World Series, no matter who is in it. Um, the one phrase I really am starting to despise is, like, because it usually just sort of comes from, you know, casual fans, which I think is the swing. Right. With like how much baseball is being followed or your teams are being followed. But, you know, when people say, I want to see somebody new, you know, in the World Series, and I want to just look at them sometimes, but no, you don't. Like, no, no, you don't. Because you say that in one breath, and you're going to turn around and say, well, it's Arizona. I don't want to watch this. There's no excitement. You know, it's a bad series. It's, it's boring. You know what I mean? So it's like they kind of, like, they, I want to see somebody new in there. No, I don't. I want to see the Phillies. I want to see Schwarber. I want to see Harper. Like, I, that's what I would rather see. Yeah. But I'm still going to watch it because I'm enjoying what a team like Arizona is able to do. You know, when it's like you got both sides of it here right now. You got Texas who went all in, you know, with signings and trades. And you got Arizona that's like a slow build and a young team. And you probably couldn't name too many of the stars. At least casual fans couldn't name too many of these players, except for maybe Corby Carroll they might be hearing from lately. So there's sort of two ways to go about it. Everybody's. Um, kind of has their opinions on baseball, how teams are built, and both these teams are doing it. So I don't think the ratings will be great. Because yeah, I think all no. those people that say that they want to see different teams in it, I think those people won't watch. Even though they, they say that this is what they want, they won't watch because they're casuals. You know what I mean? Um, so uh, it'll be interesting. I, I, I don't know how to – I don't know how – everybody keeps asking me, who thinks going to win the World Series? I say, I have no freaking clue. I thought Arizona was going to lose both of these games. I still think Texas is going to win. I think Texas is the better team. You know, we'll see if Scherzer can get a little bit stronger, but Evaldi and Montgomery, they're just money. And that yeah. lineup just bangs. And you're talking about a team that I saw in, in September, whenever it was, I'm like, their bullpen is a freaking mess. But as we've seen in the playoffs, if you have the right manager, you can manage and hide that with starters. And there's not too many guys better than Bruce Bochy. Yeah, no doubt about that. And too, like, even if you look at Tori Lavolo, there was a couple of times where I'm like, why is he pulling the pitcher? And every time it worked, I'm like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe, maybe he knows what he's doing here because I'm like, this guy's rolling. You're taking him out after five innings. Like, what is going on? It was to Kelly in game six. I'm like, Kelly was even pissed yeah. after the fifth inning. I'm like, what are you doing? Why would you take him out? It ended up working. The one thing that stuck out to me, though, just. It's funny, real quick about that. I love Tori Lavolo. He was my manager uh, one year, actually, in the minor leagues. And oh, really? Obviously, time up here in the big league bench as well yeah he's he's just fantastic and i'm happy mike hayes and everything going on down there but i'm with you on that game but they already up like nine to one and it was yeah. still like game six and you're like well why wouldn't you run them out for two more innings and save some arms for by the way you got a game seven tomorrow right yeah. so i didn't i could see it was a game and you're facing elimination which is when managers kind of do some things but you're blowing them out you're like give me two more innings keep another couple arms fresh for tomorrow and then in a must win yeah the one thing i do like is like the Rangers, they hit like a shit ton of home runs. They're going to have to do that to win the series mm -hmm. because the thing that jumped out to me watching the Diamondbacks, if anything is in the air in the outfield, those guys catch it. I mean, the range on that those outfielders is ridiculous. I mean, 
the Phillies were hitting gap shots that for a normal team, I mean, for the Red Sox, it, it probably would have been an inside the park home run. But my point being is like these guys chased everything down. It's amazing to watch this team. And I think that's a yeah. real strength of the team. Carroll came on at the end of the series. So we'll see. But it's certainly going to be an exciting series. Hopefully the Red Sox, well, we can agree on this for sure. Hopefully the Red Sox can get back there next year because there's nothing better than playoff baseball. I find myself like emotionally involved. Maybe it's because I'm gambling on these games, but I find myself emotionally involved watching these games and it's not even the Red Sox. You know what I mean? Yeah, it does get you pissed watching playoff baseball. At least it does me when the Red Sox aren't involved, you know, because you sort of like you miss that, you know, and especially yeah. with kind of what I do. I mean, I, I, I call the last two World Series, you know, champions, you know, and, and going to the field every day i'm not even playing anymore and but it was just like what time can i get there you know and the excitement at the ballpark and then the game starts and it's like ah this is like i i still i feel bad for people that don't like sports i don't know what kind of freaking happiness you bring to your life because sports are the goddamn <laughs> best thing ever like it's just these moments are like the greatest things you know in the world so it's like for me you know it's just the excitement of every day so hopefully they get back i listen We'll see what they do. There's no excuse for that team, kind of with the pieces they have, to not be a playoff team next year. And whether they're viewing 2025 with some more money coming off the books, so be it. I, I don't know. But playoffs should start next year for that organization. Yeah, I'm with you. Let's go. Breslow, get him going, man. All right. That is Lou Maloney. Of course, you hear him on or you see him on Nesson calling games. You hear him on WEI calling games as well. Lou, thanks so, so much for the time, man. I always appreciate it. Anytime, Brian. It's a lot of fun. Always talking to you. It's good. All right, great stuff there from my buddy Lou Merloni. Always great talking with Lou. And I'm excited for the World Series, man. I know that it's not Philadelphia, and I get it. You don't have Harper, you don't have Schwarber, you don't have the stars. But I'm going to watch the World Series no matter what. So I'm excited for this World Series. All right, coming up next, we'll preview the Pats and the Dolphins with John Jastrzemski. Score early this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sportsbook. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets when your first $5 Moneyline bet wins. And I'm looking at a four-legger coming up this week and a four-leg parlay, all big favorites, so it's plus 162. The Ravens over the Cardinals in Arizona. The Ravens may be the best team in the AFC right now, not named the Kansas City Chiefs. Speaking of the Chiefs, I have them over the Denver Broncos. They own Denver. The Eagles to beat the Commanders. And then the Lions at home for the Raiders on Monday Night Football. Of course, that game is a big one for the Lions after they were embarrassed by the Ravens last week. So that's for plus 162. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use, and there's so many different ways to bet. There's live same-game parlays. You can find bets in the new Explore tab. Dive into the Parlay Hub, the best way to find popular parlays, and more. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike and kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL, must be 21 plus in president select states. $5 pregame money line wager required. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, the host of New York, New York, also... Part of the East Coast Bias, the Ringer Gambling Show, the host of the Ringer Wise Guys on FanDuel TV, which you got to check out. It airs every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. before, of course, the 1 o'clock games. My buddy, John Jastrzemski. JJ, more importantly for this conversation, diehard Dolphins fan as we get ready to preview the Pats and the Dolphins. And JJ, I got to say this. I mean, we love having you on, but we definitely had to have you on because the last time we had you on previewing the Dolphins and the Patriots, you predicted the exact right score of 24 to 17 Dolphins. Do you remember this? I do. Brian, first of all, thank you for the kind introduction, number one. 
Number two, I'm a little concerned hearing this because now it puts the pressure on me to come <laughs> within a field goal maybe of what we're going to do the second time around. But, you know, I'm not going to get to do a ton of Pats Dolphins on my podcast, New York, New York. I don't know how much we'll be doing on Ringer Wise Guys come Sunday. So when, when you invited me graciously to come on the show, I was I'm super stoked. I just had a great round of golf. I'm wearing my straight throwback Miami Dolphins cap. It's ready for you. I know nobody could see that listening to a podcast, but I am full-fledged ready to go for you, amigo. So let's rock and roll. I can say it is a very nice hat. And by the way, maybe now like what's going to happen is if you get this prediction wrong, and especially from a gambling perspective, if you get this wrong, the off the pike audience is going to be upset with you, JJ, because the Ringer Wise Guys show, I'm wondering if you get any bad feedback if you miss on a bet that somebody tailed you on. Hopefully you don't get bad feedback from the off the pike audience if you miss out. We need to give each other more shit. I would say that's actually one of my biggest critiques of the show uh, seven to eight weeks into the year. I think everybody has been too nice to one another, and I think we got to start ruffling some feathers. So maybe this is a this is a good week to start bringing that out on Ringer Wise Guys. So if the off the pike <laughs> crew is going to come at me, so be it. I mean, I was in Philadelphia a couple weeks ago getting heckled left and right. So, I mean, I'm kind of used to it, dude. <laughs> All right. Hey, before we get into this game. So, I'm watching the Celtics and the Knicks on Wednesday night. Had, and I know you're a huge Knicks guy. Had you heard of this Kristaps Porzingis guy before? Had you seen him yeah, play like, in a different we were uniform? Going there. I had a feeling we were going there. And listen, I give credit where credit is due. Porzingis was brilliant last night. I, in my opinion, Brian, he was the best player on the floor both ends impacting the game defensively, being able to stretch the floor, altering all sorts of shots. And you can make the argument the biggest shot of the game was that back-breaking Porzingis three to hit about a minute and a half left. Look, there's no denying the talent. We know what he can do. He's been an all-star before. We know he can shoot it. We know he can defend. Can you keep him on the court? And can he be this version of Christos Porzingis in April in May, and in June. That, to me, is the million-dollar question. But what I like about what the Celtics did with Porzingis here, Bri, they're not asking him to be the guy. That, to me, is the perfect role for him to be in, where it's like, look, Jason Tatum is your number one. We all know that. They paid Jalen Brown $10 zillion. He's your number two. And now Porzingis and Drew Holiday, I think they're perfect complementary players. My questions about the Celtics are your head coach, and the guys coming off the bench, that to me, leave a lot to be desired. But listen, you're one of five teams that can win an NBA title. It's a nice place to be. Yeah, the one thing I'll say about that is I kind of think he's the number two option. And he's just more of a dangerous offensive player than Jalen Brown. And look, maybe part of it is we watch Jalen Brown play every night, so you get frustrated with some of the turnovers. He is a great shot maker and all that. But Porzingis's unique skill set being 7-4, whatever it is, to be able to shoot threes, he can roll to the basket. I just think he's so perfect with Tatum. Like, we've had these conversations for years. Hey, is the Tatum and Jalen Brown pairing, does it really work, right? Because there's some redundancy there in terms of the skill set. Porzingis opens up a lot of things for Jason Tatum. So even if you said, like, in a vacuum, hey, Jalen Brown's a better player. If he had to be the best player, maybe he's better than Kristaps Porzingis, right? Like, if, J if Jason Tatum was taking a couple of nights off. But in terms of a guy to play with Tatum... Porzingis, it's more of a match, right? It's a big with a swingman rather than a swingman and a swingman. Totally fair. And listen, his game is perfectly suited to the modern-day NBA. And, you know, I think 
Brian, some Knicks fans wanted to get all bent out of shape. Porzingis, it feels like, to me, left such a long time ago. It feels like another lifetime ago. He was in Dallas. He was in Washington. So the wound isn't necessarily as raw to me as it would be with some other guys where you'd be like, wow, Mm. you know, the one that got away. Porzingis has been gone for so long that, look, he doesn't have that same tie-in to the Knicks that he once did, but he's a great fit for you guys, and Holiday is such a winning player. I can't stress this enough. He does everything you want. He gets after it defensively. He sets up his teammates. When you need him to hit big threes, he'll be able to make them. I love that move for Boston. They're a better team than what they were a year ago. There's no doubt in my mind. Yeah, I agree with you. And they needed to change something up from an offensive perspective, and they certainly did. All right, so it was not a good week for your Dolphins, and we'll get into that in a second. You texted me Sunday afternoon, yes, followed by five exclamation points after the Patriots beat the Bills. Now, I lost my survivor pool on that pick. I'm cooked in my survivor pool, unfortunately. But I'm sure that text was because it helped your Dolphins because they sit atop the AFC East at five and two and Buffalo is now four and three. So I was watching the Ringer Wise guys and you were on the Patriots. I thought no chance based on recent history. But then I started to hear a lot of people were anti-Bills last week and I was starting to get worried because the line was so big and I was starting to second guess myself. My survivor pick was already in, but I'm thinking to myself, wait, so how did you, why did you have a good feeling about this? Was it more about Buffalo, more about the Patriots? Like, why did you, because I, I, I'll tell you, like last week in the pod, I thought there was no chance the Patriots would win in that football game. So why did you feel good about the Patriots or is it more of an anti-Buffalo thing? All right, full disclosure, I did not think New England was going to win the game outright. Uh, when but I gave cover. out New England and Buffalo is the rat pick of the week, to me, it kind of had to do with the line, the fact that everybody was rushing in Brian to go and bet the Buffalo Bills, and they open that line at eight and a half. Then all of a sudden, it comes down to seven and a half, and yet every Molari and Curly is going to bet the Buffalo Bills. It just kind of <laughs> seemed a little off to me. And when I see games like that, I'm always going to go the other way for better or worse. Um, it's anti-Bills more so than it was pro-Patriots. I was surprised what you saw from New England offensively. But I think from Buffalo's standpoint, their defense without Matt Milano and without Tredavious White is just not the same. It's not the same defense that Buffalo had week one against the Jets. It's not the same defense they had in week four against the Miami Dolphins. So I I thought it would be a tight game. I I thought New England would play with some pride. But full disclosure, that's a 12-point game. Buffalo scores... Then Bourne fumbles the ball and Buffalo takes the lead. I was stunned, Brian, at that point in time that Mac Jones went down the field. They got like 30 or 40 yards on a Stevenson screen pass. And I'm watching the game with a buddy of mine. And we got all the games going. And that game had the sound because it was coming down to the wire. And I said to my buddy, I go, look out for Gesicki here. Throw to Gesicki, who knows a thing or two about scoring in that end zone. Just ask Tom Brady and ask Bill Belichick going back to 2019. And they hit him on the slant route, and they end up winning the game. Uh, I was stunned they won the game. At that point in time, knowing Mac Jones' history, stunned they found a way to pull it out. Yeah, me too, because he's had like one other game-winning drive since he left Alabama. So everybody was shocked. I'm completely with you. When the Bills took the lead, I thought the game was over. I'm like, okay, they were competitive, and they lost. Now, maybe they screw up their draft position because of that. Like, maybe in the long run, this will end up being a bad win for the Patriots. But... So the Dolphins in that game, they lose 31-17 to to Philly. And Philly just took the air out of the ball. They had the ball for 36 minutes and 43 seconds. So that's how Philly wants to play. And basically, 
they end up just milking the clock the entire game. So I'm wondering about this from a Dolphins perspective. Was this a more of a one-off? Like what Philadelphia could do from an offensive perspective that slowed down the Dolphins' offense? Are you worried about the Dolphins' offense at all? Because they've had like these unbelievable great games. They're putting up 70 points, but they've also had some of these games, the Bills game, and as you said, those guys, Tredavious White, Milano now out. But the Patriots game, even that game, I didn't think the offense was great. They had the big Mostert run after the three and out for the Patriots. But overall, I didn't think the Dolphins offense was great in that game. So are you concerned at all about this Dolphins offense that once looked like it was on pace to be the best offense in NFL history? Here's what I'm concerned about. Their offensive line is really beat up. They don't have Toronto Armstead. And when you're going up against Philadelphia, Philadelphia is one of, if not the best defensive front in the NFL. I mean, they can shuffle in guys left and right, left and right. To not have Toronto Armstead, to not have Connor Williams, who's underrated and one of the better centers in the NFL, is going to make a ton of money in the offseason. And I know you're going to hear this and you're going to laugh, but they've taken the old Patriot Isaiah Wynn and they moved him to guard and he's played really well at that guard spot. They lost him in the first quarter so I kind of had a feeling, Brian, when they're down three starters on the offensive line, it's problematic against Philly. And that's exactly how the game played out. That said, they're down seven. They had a chance to tie it. Tua underthrew a guy. You had two receivers run the same route. It ends up getting picked off. And then Philadelphia had to convert a bunch of fourth downs. I actually really liked what I saw from Miami's defense last week without Xavier Howard. Without Jalen Ramsey, they hit Jalen Hurts. They did a good job of containing Philly in the run game. They didn't run all over the Miami Dolphins, but A.J. Brown made a couple of backbreaking plays. They take the air out of the ball, to your point, and end up losing by two scores. I think that was a terrible spot to get Philly. And that's one narrative that I think is getting totally blown out of proportion with the Miami Dolphins. And look, I'm not saying they're going to the Super Bowl. I'm not saying they're even winning the AFC East yet. I still have to see it to believe it. But there's a narrative out there, Brian. Oh, they can't beat a good team. Hold on a second. They played Buffalo at Buffalo. That's one of the toughest places to play in the NFL. They had a clunker. No getting around it. They played like crap. Yep. Buffalo at Buffalo. Philly at Philly. One of the three best home field advantages in the NFL. That team, that defense off a fluky loss against the Jets. Like These are, these are brutal spots. Now, eventually you do got to beat a good team. They'll have chances. They'll have Kansas City next week in Germany. They got Dallas later on at home. They have Baltimore on New Year's Eve, which will be a monster game. They get the Bills again. They get the Jets a couple of times. I don't worry about that narrative all. Can they beat a good team? I think it's totally overblown. It's way too early for that. I'm more worried about their health and their status because that's, to me, the sort of thing that can upset this engine. Down a couple of starters on the offensive line, don't have a couple of corners, then things get hairy for you. Yeah, speaking of those corners, like Jalen Ramsey apparently was close last week. Is he going to, I mean, by the injury report, it looks like he's like ramping up and they need him in that secondary right now. I was looking at some of their numbers in the secondary, 27th in passer rating against, 27th in completion percentage against, yards per attempt, 26th, they're 28th in dropback success rate. So, and the corners have not been great for this team so far this season. So, I mean... Obviously, they need Ramsey at some point, right? He's a game changer for any defense. But how concerned are you right now about that passing defense? See, I'm not because of what you just mentioned. I think their secondary is going to look drastically different 
when they get Jalen Ramsey. And then don't forget about their nickel guy, Nick Needham, who played really well for them in 2020 and 2021. He tore his Achilles. He has not played a game yet. He might come back and play in this game against the Patriots. If not, he's going to play the week after or the week after that. So you have some reinforcements to me coming in that secondary where I say, okay, I know the numbers don't look great, but I expect it to get to a much different level when you get premier talent like Ramsey specifically back. And I also think that the defensive line is coming on that's going to help them that much more. Secondary, assuming these guys get on the field, Brian, not too worried. Yeah, well, I will say this. From a Patriots angle in this, the big thing going forward is they've decided not to play Devontae Parker after he made the stupid comment two weeks ago. Your old friend, Devontae Parker. The Patriots, I mentioned this the other day, they are 1-8 and eight since Parker came over when they target him four times or more. When they target him fewer than four times, and he's missed some games naturally, the Patriots have won 70% of their games. They're 7-3 and three when they don't target him more than four times. So I don't expect him to be heavily involved. This guy has been a complete bust since he came over, and they decided... Let's just play Bourne, and they played the rookie Douglas, and Douglas actually, not to say the teams are like, oh, we got a game plan for Douglas, but he at least brings something to the table. He's a playmaker. He can do things after the catch. They use him on jet sweeps, and Bourne has been a good receiver over the past couple years, so that's something that's certainly intriguing going forward, and it's something where I look at this Patriots offense, not to say that I don't, I don't, I'm not stupid enough to buy into this one performance against the Bills, but I did think that, okay, the line at least got healthier and the Patriots did this crazy thing where they featured their best players on offense and threw it to Bourne and threw it to Douglas. And Bill O'Brien finally used some play action. They got the ball to max hands quickly. I do think the Patriots offense is a lot better than the offense the Dolphins saw earlier this season. And depending on health from a Dolphins perspective, I do think the Patriots offense will at least look competent in this game. Look, I do too. Um, it's been better, at least for the last week and a half. I thought they showed some good signs against Buffalo. And, you know, this is a monster number. This is such a yeah. – You know, I, I think the only – New England would, be, would have been better off, I guess, in this game if they had lost to Buffalo just from a standpoint of, hey, you might kind of sneak up on the Dolphins. There's no sneaking up on the Dolphins. You just beat the Buffalo Bills, and Miami's coming off of a loss. I do think right. they'll be able to move the ball. The question is, are they going to be able to capitalize in the red zone? That, to me, is the million-dollar question. Is New England going to be able to take the ball, not just between the 20s, but can they go and score touchdowns? And let's be honest, Bri, they're going to need to score touchdowns if they're going to go and beat Miami in this game. Because you figure Miami, worst-case scenario, is getting to 24 points. Worst case. Yeah, and their trouble has been actually just getting to the red zone. So if you look at it on the season— the Dolphins, they've had issues in the red zone. What, 66.7% in terms of their touchdown against, 27, so touchdown percentage in the red zone. The Patriots' offense is fourth, 66.7% touchdown percentage in the red zone. The problem is they've only been there 15 times, which it's the fewest of any team that's played seven games. So their problem has been getting to the red zone. When they actually get there, they've been okay. Now, we'll see if they can get into the red zone like they did last week against Buffalo, but... I wanted to move to the other side of the ball because the Patriots, they held Tua to his second lowest passer rating of the season, 92.2. Had the pick. Christian Gonzalez, of course, will not be playing. He had the interception in that game. But Tua on the season, a 110.4 rating, which is first in the NFL, in the NFL and 92.2, which he had in that game against the Patriots, that rank about 13th. So it's a it's a big drop-off. The Patriots did a good job tackling in that game outside of like the Mostert run, but that's not from a passing game perspective. J.C. Jackson has, like, 
been okay. Like, he's been solid. He played well against Stephon Diggs in that game last week. But the Patriots, remember they did that weird thing where they had the three-safety look, and it was basically like, hey, you're going to have to methodically go down the football field against us in the passing game. Now, they did bust out the big run, as I mentioned. But any concern that the Dolphins would struggle a little bit against this Patriots defense based on what we saw earlier this season? Um, you want to tell me that there could be some containment? Yeah, I, I guess you could sell me on that. There's a comfort level. There's a familiarity, whatever the case may be. And I, I think they're going to have a similar game plan, Bri. I mean, I think they're going to try and get there with their front. They're going to drop the three safeties back, and they're going to say, okay, no big plays. You're going to nickel and dime us. You're going to nickel and dime us. Let's try to shorten the game and, and try to win it that way. I, I think for Miami, you know this. And Tyreek Hill was on the injury report with a hip. There was some question about whether or not he's going to play. Tyreek basically said today, I'm going to be out there. You got nothing to worry about. I'm playing on Sunday. So I hear the cheetah. I listen to the cheetah. Jalen Waddell is the guy to me that's going to have opportunities to feast against this defense because I think the focus from Bill is going to be, hey, we're putting three guys back there. We're keeping an eye on Tyreek Hill at all times. We are not going to let this guy go and do what he was able to do to Brent Staley in week one where he goes off for 200 yards. Oh, by the way, torching J.C. Jackson in the process when he was matched (laughs) up with him on way too many different occasions. I think this time around, J.C. Jackson will have help in more ways than one, but that's where two has got to rely on that Alabama connection and Jalen Waddell's come on over the last couple weeks and I I would put a wager on Jalen Waddell getting in the end zone and doing that dance. I think he's going to have a big game on Sunday. Yeah, it's a really good dance, too. I mean, you can't hate him for that dance. Even oh, that's as a one Patriots of the best. Oh, one of the best. No question. Yeah, no doubt. Hey, so before we let you go, so you like the Patriots to cover the nine and a half, or do you think the Dolphins will actually cover that? Or I said you like, you know, I should the Dol- say you like the Patriots Here's the, with the weird points. thing about the Dolphins this year, though. When they win, they cover. So, mm. you know, against sub 500 teams, they smoked Denver. They smoked the Giants. They smoked Carolina. They won a close game against the Chargers. Uh, I'm going to say this is a seven-point game again. I'm going to say 27-20 Miami over New England. A little more high scoring than the last time. 27-20 Miami. 27-20. Okay, we're writing it down. So in that case, the Patriots would cover 27-20 Miami. I think the Patriots cover the number. I don't love it. It's not a great feel. It's definitely not going to be one of my best bets on Ringer Wise guys. Uh, I think the Patriots keep it close. I think Miami finds a way. 27-20. Okay, and JJ, before I let you go, because you're part of the Ringer Wise guys, part of the Ringer Gambling feed, and not to put you on the spot here, but the World Series starts on Friday night. Anything you like in that World Series? I mean, I don't know what to make of it. I still, like, I was talking to my buddy Lou Merloni. I have no idea what to make of this Arizona team. I, 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 I was shocked that they won six and seven in Philadelphia, but anything you like in this series coming up or in game one in particular? Well, you and me both. I mean, I'm stunned that we're sitting here in the Arizona Diamondbacks are playing in the World Series. However, Texas got it going, man. You know about Evaldi in big spots. How good has Jordan Montgomery been? To me, the difference in this series, and I think Arizona deserves a lot of respect. They win game six and seven in Philadelphia. They're down 2-0, and they show fight in game three and then more fight in game four. Uh, and I love Corbin Carroll, and I love Cattell Marte. I mean, these are fantastic players. I just think Texas has too many guys that can wreck games. Garcia can wreck games. Seager can wreck games. I know he's not been great this postseason. It's only a matter of time, in my opinion, for Marcus Simeon. And, dude, Texas has never won a World Series. 
You got Bruce Bochy at the helm. I'm sorry. I love Tori Lavello. I think he's a really good manager. He did a good job, I know, with Boston many moons ago. I like Lavello. Yeah. I think this is a hard-fought series. Give me Texas in six. Texas in six. All right, I like it. You know what else I like is the Rangers are like what the Red Sox and the Yankees used to be in the early 2000s, where it was a bidding war for everything. And Texas said, you know what? Let's pay DeGrom. They had already paid Seager. They had already paid Simeon. They just don't care. And at the trading deadline, they make all these trades. They don't care. Like, I love this team that has just gone all in. And look, I give a ton of respect to Arizona and all that, but teams should also be rewarded when they spend like this. Like, I, I hate the narrative of like, oh, we want the big money team to lose and all that. Like, I this meet the ownership group cares. The GM, Chris Young, has done an outstanding job. He actually cares. Like, this is what the Red Sox and the Yankees, and I know the payrolls are high, but it's not the same thing. Where it's like, Corey Seager, if you go back to 2004, 2005, 2003, he'd if he was a free agent, he'd yeah, be Yankee. He'd be, or a Red he Sox. He fits the be, Yankees to a T. Left-handed power hitter. All right, they have a shortstop in Volpe. They could have easily moved him over to third base. It would have been a seamless transition. And you're right. In the mid-2000s, a guy like Seager is a Yankee. No question about it. No doubt. Yeah, I just hope the rivalry's back next year because we need it. I mean... I'd love it for the Red Sox and the Yankees. I know I, I shouldn't say this is Red say Sox. I was rivalry for what? Trying to get that second wild card in the American yeah. League? Third wild I mean, card? JJ, when we talked in the summer for our FanDuel TV show, we had to come up with our favorite Red Sox and Yankees moments because they both stunk this year. Like, we couldn't even talk about the actual series because nobody was interested in it. Uh, you and me both. I didn't even make a trip to Fenway Park this year. That tells you how lousy and pathetic it was. It speaks volumes, bud. <laughs> All right, that is John Jastrzemski, of course, host of New York, New York. East Coast Bias, part of the Ringer Gambling Feed, also hosts the Ringer Wise Guys on FanDuel TV. JJ, thank you so much for the time, man. Have a great show. Have a great pod tonight. Have a great show on Sunday, man. And we'll talk again soon. 27 to 20, we'll hold you to it. Uh, We'll see if I can make it two for two. All right, Brian. Thanks for a few minutes, man. Appreciate it. All right, great stuff there from JJ. Coming up next, Jamie will join us. We'll give you our picks for the Pats Dolphins, a couple of other picks, thanks to our friends at FanDuel. And we'll get to an email as well. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Remember, if you want to leave us a voicemail, of course, you can leave one Friday night after the season, the heat. We won't have another game until Monday, so we can react to that on Sunday. If you want to leave us a voicemail during the Patriots-Dolphins game, certainly welcome to do so on that. And, of course, on the Breslow hiring. That number is 617-396-7172. You can also email us at offthepike at gmail.com. And thanks, that's where we bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? I'm good, Brian. Digesting that nice Celtics win. More to come, I'm sure. Hell yeah. That was fun. Great to have basketball back, you know? I know. I find myself not as, this is the least emotional I've been about a Patriots game this year. Where I'm like, oh, okay, we got the Bruins, they're rolling. And then you got the Celtics who are playing really well. And actually, let me take the Bruins part out of that, just in case they lose tonight. All right, this is, Jamie, this is like the least emotionally involved i've been in the patriots this season not to say i'm not excited for the game and all that but i feel like if they lose i'm not going to be as like pissed off as i've been at previous points because the celtics are back we got poor zingus he looked awesome and tatum looks awesome i'm just excited for the season so yes if the patriots lose i can come to the conclusion we already knew before the season they weren't a legit contender we're in the point like should they actually be losing so we can get a better draft pick right like that type of stuff is entered the mine 
I do know that the Celtics are a championship level yep. team and they have aspirations to win a championship. So I'm not going to get as upset when the Patriots lose games. Now, with that being said, I'll probably get pissed off Monday or excuse me, <laughs> Sunday night when we're recording with James yep. White after the Patriots do something stupid. I mean, I will say, though, uh, I hear you, but the good news is it's almost like either way, I'll have something to take away from the Patriots game. They win. Fantastic. They're kind of back in it a little bit. If they lose, I think we can finally put it to bed and, you know, just just count down the losses until we get a high draft pick or something like that. But either way, we got the Celtics moving forward. Heat game's going to be a lot of fun on Friday night. I'm excited for that. Um, Sounds like the listeners are excited, too. So we got some, uh, some juicy stuff in the mailbag, but the one... That we have here, like you mentioned on the top of the pod, the talk of Celtics Nation is what to do with Jalen Brown with this new offense. Um, this is from Chris. And Chris writes, "I'm going to preface this. I'm going to preface what I'm about to say by saying that I love Jalen Brown. Watching his entire career, the player and person he's become, has been one of the great joys of the last decade for me. Watching this team, but watching the game last night, I thought JB looked a little lost. It's weird to look at the box score and see that he led the team in assists." and only had two turnovers, but it didn't feel like that when you were watching. Uh, for this season, I feel like Brown's best role is going to be as a finisher. A guy you get moving around screens before delivering the ball to him, so you can get him to an advantageous position to either shoot or drive. Uh, it reminded me a bit of what Dwayne Wade was with the, the Heat, back with uh, you know the big three over there. Obviously, Jalen's not the passer that Wade was, but he has a similar mode. Secondary slasher and attacker who plays off a dominant first option. Not only do I think this would be his best role, but I think it would be the best way for the Celtics to go moving forward. He's your designated finisher and encourages Missoula to play him with at least a couple other starters, which is everyone's benefit. Yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. And the first thing about the turnovers where he had just two turnovers, but it felt like more. The reason is because it came at critical points during the game. He had mm-hmm. one where he's trying to throw to Drew Holiday. Made no sense. I don't know what he's doing. And then the other one was an inbound. That's back why it feels like more because he has these turnovers that make you want to pull your hair out and they're at important junctures yep. of the game in terms of the Dwayne Wade thing the reason I don't see that I understand the point in terms of the role Jalen could be a great cutter if he wanted to be and all that like that's that's certainly all true but here's the problem is Dwayne Wade at that point okay because his knees went like basically I would say two years into the heatles he's one of these guys that got when he was at Marquette, he got the meniscus just removal. So mm-hmm. he dealt with knee injuries. He said he's regretted that surgery ever since, right? The the reason he did it is he's super competitive. He's a young kid at the time, and he just wanted to play. So it's like, okay, you can get back quicker with the right. trim rather than the repair. I don't know why I'm going to this whole thing about Dwayne Wade's <laughs> knee history. But anyway, my point being with that is, like, he was still pretty, like, prime Dwayne Wade the first two years when they won the championship right. against Oklahoma City the year before against Dallas, and he was actually way better than LeBron in the first finals. Remember, LeBron, he couldn't post up J.J. Barea. Like, they were toying <laughs> with him and putting J.J. Barea on him, and they wouldn't, he wouldn't post him up. But anyway, my point with that is, going back to that point where he was at sort of, I wouldn't say the ultimate peak of his athleticism, but Dwayne Wade was pretty close. This guy was an absolutely ruthless defensive player. He's one of the best defensive players for like a five-year period. He would get into passing lanes. He would get steals. No, Now, look, Jalen is a great transition player. I said the other day, I thought Jalen could lead the league in fast break points this season if he really wanted to. He'd leak out in transition, get easy opportunities mm-hmm. that way. Dwayne Wade was one of the best cutters in NBA history. That guy would cut, they would find him, and he would dunk on you. Jalen's not... 
like this is not I don't want this to sound like a shot of Jalen. Dwayne Wade was an incredibly cerebral basketball player. Jalen is not the same way where Dwayne Wade reads everything well. Yeah. That's why Dwayne Wade, Dwayne Wade was one of the best shot blocking guards of all time. He was a great shot blocking guard. In fact, if you look like through basketball reference, you'll see like, holy shit, he had that many blocks. Like Dwayne Wade was a great blocker. Like Derek White, great blocker. Now Dwayne Wade did it differently. He did it more. Derek White does it with craft. He does it more with ridiculous athleticism. But I just, I that's why I don't see the comparison. Like Dwayne Wade is just... Dwayne Wade is ridiculous, man. Like he's for a five-year stretch, man. He was a top three player in the game. Yeah. He was he was this guy was a Finals MVP at the age of what twenty-three years old. Yeah. And I get it, he had Shaq, but he was the guy that won the Finals MVP. He was the guy doing the heavy lifting. Dwayne Wade could like run a pick and roll, and you would not feel great good about it. You would feel like okay, we got the advantage here. You never feel that way with. Jalen Brown, not to mention Dwayne Wade. This goes without saying. He was a way better handler of the basketball than Jalen Brown. But I do understand the point, like the roller playing off the ball, yeah. being more of a play finisher. I understand all that. But I just, from a defensive perspective, he can't be Dwayne Wade. I, I've i never seen him be like a guy that moves off the ball well. That's what Dwayne Wade did well is what he figured out when he played with LeBron because he was used to having the ball in his hands the whole time. That's where he became one of the best cutters in the NBA. Jalen Brown has never played well off the ball. Like, even if it's like off-ball action trying to get him the ball, he, he's never been great at that, right? It's the same thing on defense. He's horrible off the ball. Off the ball. Just falls yeah. asleep. Falls asleep. Or then he'll do like some inexplicable thing where he's doubling Julius Randle when Drew Holiday, according to tracking data, held him for one for ten. Why would you go double him? Like, just yeah. mind-numbing decisions. So that's why I, I... Dwayne Wade, to me, is just... He's in a different criteria. Like, I can't, I can't put him in the Dwayne Wade. He won a scoring title. No, for sure. I mean, I'm 30 years old. D-Wade was definitely, like, one of the best players of my lifetime, almost. And, obviously, Jalen's not quite there. I mean, I get what you're saying. Uh, yeah, similar role. I think also what he mentioned in the email, which you, you mentioned on the top, was, uh, you know, that you have to put him out there with a couple of their starters, maybe. But... Maybe if you do that, you can still get some productive minutes while Tatum's on the bench if you leave out Derek White or Drew Holiday or something like that. And, you know, because it seemed like they weren't really doing that last night, at least. It was like Jalen and then all of the bench guys. And maybe you have them in tandem with someone else. Yeah, that's an interesting point. If it's like, so if Tatum's off the court and Porzingis is off the court, those are your two best players, two yeah. best offensive weapons, if you will. I mean, we can argue in terms of the best players. So I'm sure we'll do that throughout the season. But nonetheless, my point being is, if Jalen's sort of the featured player, you need Derek White or Drew yeah. Holiday or yeah, yeah. both of those guys out there with them. Maybe that is a way for Missoula and Missoula to sort of compromise with Jalen, where it's like, okay, this is where you get your shots. Not to say that he's he needs to do like Missoula needs to do anything drastic after the first game of the season. But if it continues to go this way and Jalen's getting less shot attempts than both Jason Tatum and Kristaps Porzingis, and it's by like a significant margin, well, then that's going to become an issue at some point. Yeah. Like Jalen, after signing that contract for $300 million, he's not going to be very happy about that. And yeah. I can totally understand where he's coming from. I just, it's, I feel like out of all the players, like the star players, and we got into this a little bit the other night, it is going to be the hardest for him to find his role. Like Derek White the other night, like Derek White's not looking for points. He just, he comes up with a couple of Derek White plays, Drew Holiday, I don't think he was great in that game the other night. He had a couple of careless turnovers, obviously didn't shoot the ball well, but he came up with a couple of big blocks, came up with a huge offensive rebound in a critical situation. 
So those guys are just going to fit in, right, to the team. Like, they, they understand the roles of the team. Jalen's the one guy where it's like, his role's not as obvious. Like, Jalen's role has changed, right? He's not as involved as he was in the past. I wonder what they, I, I just forgot this because I was looking up the offseason that they traded for Porzingis about like a month before the Supermax actually got signed. They, t- they must have talked about, you know, the new pieces and stuff like that. I wonder uh, what that conversation was like. I wonder what Jalen thought of. I'm mean, obviously signing it either way because it's a ton of money, but still, yeah, you, you, you got to think they discussed it a little bit. Yeah, and they probably are working on different things. Like, I mean, it's that, that's my other thing about this whole thing. It's one game, right? And yeah. like this Jalen conversation yeah, has been enough. like a, a big talking point. Uh, and it, I bet it would be a different thing too. Like that, the game flow where Jalen just wasn't good early on, right? And Tatum and Porzingis both had it going. So those guys are going to be featured. Heck, we may look up in that Heat game on Friday night and Jalen has 10 points in the first quarter. Jalen has probably. over the past two years better one of the best first quarter scorers in the NBA. So I actually wouldn't be surprised if they yeah. dial up like the first play of the game to try to get Jalen going and get him in some sort of rhythm because he is an outstanding offensive player. It's just fitting him in and what his skill set is, is a lot more difficult than fitting in the rest yeah. of these guys. True. No. All right, Jamie. So we'll get ready for that game coming up on Friday night. Celtics and heat cannot wait for that one, but how about this? Let's get to our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. So, we each have a couple of bets here. Let's start with the Patriots first. So nine and a half point dogs in Miami. We just talked to JJ about this game. Patriots never play well in Miami. I kind of feel like they're going to cover. I do feel like, and we were talking about this, I feel like they've kind of found something with, hey, let's play Bourne. Let's play Douglas. Those guys have played pretty well over the past couple of weeks, right? Like, or the past week, I should say. Douglas Bourne's been doing it for a couple of weeks, but Douglas, they finally featured him and it paid off. Like my buddy, Andrew, our buddy, Andrew Callahan, he had the note that they are 2.67 points better with him on the field Mm -hmm. like that, or they are 2.67 yards per play better with him on the field and off the field, like doing the on off metric, like the NBA 2.67 yards better. I mean, that's amazing. He's just, he's something to account for. So, So I do feel like they can move the ball on that Miami defense the one concern, obviously, you don't have Christian Gonzalez. Now, J.C. Jackson has played pretty well since he came over here, which doesn't surprise me that much just because when he was with the Chargers, he was hurt the whole time, and then he was upset with the coaching staff and all that. So that was that was a health issue, and it was a personal mm-hmm. issue. I'm not saying that he's going to be the same guy we saw a couple of years ago. Bill did hold Tyreek Hill to just the 40 yards. So I do think they can cover this game. And I know that Miami is coming off a loss. Like, they're going to be motivated and all that. But... And by the way, it's in Miami. Tyreek Hill, every time they play Miami, cramps up. He's an IV. He, he, yeah, he has to leave. Every time yeah. he has to leave for like a couple of plays because he cramps up. So I do think they're going to cover. I'm, I'm thinking about just like for the value of it, plus 360 on the money line. I if you really you. want, If you really want to get frisky. Because I think the, I don't want to say the Dolphins have been solved because that's certainly not true. But their offense, they've had these great performances, and then it's been like, uh, what happened against Philadelphia, right? Where they yeah, were just dominant does. in terms of the time of possession Philadelphia was over Miami. So I feel like they're going to cover the nine and a half. I do. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. I think taking them to win outright is obviously a bit dicier. I, I don't, I'm not giving them a zero percent chance to Patriots. I think they they could do it. Obviously, they had their best game of the season last week. But I think the nine and a half—that's a huge number. So yeah, I think they could definitely get it. I saw. Some stat that last week was the first time we, under Mac Jones, that we've won a game where we let up 25 points. So 
maybe we're better equipped to hang with them, at least, again, within 10 points. That sounds doable. And in terms of Gonzalez, who played well against Tyreek uh, week two, I, I think our secondary is better now than it was then, actually, because now you got Jack Jones, Jonathan Jones, and J.C. Jackson. That's a solid trio, honestly, you know, and I, I don't think any of those guys played week two. Yeah, so it's obviously you don't like Gonzalez is better than any of those guys. But in terms of the depth, like you three had, guys. yeah, you you have three guys that are at least solid at the position. It's 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 a fair argument. And that is a great number on Mac. It's the first time they won where the opponent scored 25 points. It's great and sad at the same time, but at least well, it yeah, was the first time. <laughs> it's not great in 2022 or 2023. Oh when you haven't won a single game against a team that scored 25 points, like eventually in the NFL, you're going to have to win some shootouts. I don't care if you have the best defense in the league, like the Browns last week, they had to put up points exactly. to win that game against the Colts. And that was PJ Walker playing quarterback, <laughs> not even Deshaun Watson. So, but we'll see. We'll see how this thing goes. It's going to be interesting though. They can, they can cover that. Yeah. And Bill had something for them last time. They played that True. three safety game plan that I was talking about. So we'll, we'll see what they have in store for them. And, one thing that has been back this year that wasn't in previous years in recent Patriots history, he has been taken away like your number one option. He's done a decent job of that. He mm-hmm. took away Tyreek Hill. Yeah. They did a good job on Diggs, I thought, last week, too. I know Diggs got his, but they did a good job on him. He didn't. He's been in so many of these games Diggs has against the Patriots where he just completely dominated. That wasn't the case last week. No. J.C. Jackson held up relatively well. Totally. I mean, at the very end, obviously he squeaked around a bit more, but I mean, the reason the Patriots were able to build those big leads is, yeah, they shut him down the first half. And A.J. Brown, who's been going crazy the past, like, five, six weeks, he didn't do anything week one. So, yeah, they've done a good job against the number one receivers. All right, so I got to hit a parlay this week. So this is a four-legger, plus 162 on FanDuel. All big favorites. Ravens over the Cardinals in Arizona. Boom. Lamar is definitely in the MVP conversation right now. He has been outstanding. Then I have the Chiefs winning over the Broncos because Denver stinks, and the Chiefs have (laughs) (laughs) still have Pat Mahomes and Travis Kelsey, and they're rolling right now. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Like, all this stuff about all these different teams before the season, and here we go. It's like the Chiefs are the the new Patriots. Here they they are. are. They're 6-1. and They're just rolling. And then I have the Eagles over the Commanders. The Commanders are a mess right now. And I know the Commanders historically have played this Eagles right. team tough, but man, like that, I don't know how that defense is bad. It is, and that Commanders team is just not. And I'm pissed because I picked them to beat the Giants last week, so I, I am completely out on the Commanders. And then the Lions at home for the Raiders. The Raiders yeah, like are a mess that. right now. They're dealing with injuries. The Lions are pissed off. They lost to the Ravens. They were manhandled in that game. So I like the Lions to win that game. Back in the dome. I wonder about that though. Outside, they struggled a bit. The Lions. So that's did. something. To, yeah, that's something to monitor going forward the rest of the season. Of course, not just the, they're going to play in a lot of those games in the NFC North, but in the playoffs, Philly's going to probably have home right. field advantage, right? So th- I want to see like how they react to playing outside. So that's my four leg parlay for plus one sixty two. I think this is the week I get back on track, Jamie. What do you got? I like that. That was a good bet. Um, I kind of went in a different direction. I'm, I'm usually a very, very safe better, but I picked... This could go two different ways. We'll see which way you prefer. But I have a lot of home underdogs this week, which always kind of catches my eye. But like the, Colts, the home dog. The home dog. I mean, yeah, it's, it's tried and true, but it's, it's, it's accurate. It's like the Colts underdogs at home against the Saints. Just small underdogs, but still. I mean, you mentioned that game with P.J. Walker against the Browns. They were hanging with them. They should have won that game, I thought. They got like eight chances yeah. at the end of the game, the Browns won. They were basically handed it to them. And I just don't see why 
they're underdogs against uh, the Saints. I mean, the Saints are pretty good, but again, I was impressed with the Colts last week. They're at home. But that I in, like their coach. I like their coach. Yeah, I like Steichen. Yeah, and if if you're that Colts team, like almost feel like last week, like losing a tough game. I think it's good for them going yeah. forward because it's like, well, what if you come away from next year's draft if you continue to lose? And it's like, well, we now have Marvin Harrison Jr. to go with Anthony Richardson. Like this could be one of those seasons where it's like, if you just take what Anthony Richardson did, he showed some promise, but hey, dude, you got to chill. Can't just like tr- be trying to run over linebackers and injuring your shoulder and all that but you could feel pretty good about the Colts going for because I think Steichen's outstanding yeah I agree and they have obviously some great running backs as well to pair them already and you, have a, and you add up stud wide receiver in the draft could be good but uh I like that and I think you pair that with the Steelers are also plus two and a half at home against the Jaguars and obviously Jaguars are on a bit of a win streak uh I think they've won like four in a row they're good but I think the Steelers you know they beat who the Ravens and the Rams the past two weeks like they're not slouches so I just think that's a surprising home underdog, and I think you can either parlay those two together, Brian, for plus three forty three, pretty Ooh. good value. I know, that's a big, big payoff right there. But if you're feeling, you know, a little cautious about that, you're not sure what's going to happen there. You can turn that into a teaser, and then you throw in the Chiefs just to make juice it a bit more. You get plus one thirty for a six and a half point teaser, where the Colts are plus seven and a half at home. And the Steelers are plus nine at home. And then the Chiefs just have to beat the Broncos by one point. That's plus 130. That seems like a pretty good bet, too. But which would you take if you had to take one? I'd probably go for the first one. But although I don't actually know the second one, because I'm not as confident in the Steelers as Mm -hmm. you are. And I do like this Jaguars team, although we'll see. Like apparently Pittsburgh's pissed at Trevor Lawrence because he said he Mm -hmm. talked about the terrible towels. He said those are small yellow towels they wave. I I don't know why that's offensive. Like they're not big towels. That's exactly like sacred in Pittsburgh. I get it, but I mean, remember <laughs> people were mad at him last year at um was it, remember at Arrowhead because they're like, oh, what's it going to be like to play in this type of atmosphere? And he's like, well, like I played in big college games before. Like it's like a, it's not really going to fit. I like Lawrence a lot, so I w- I would go with the second one just because plus nine for the I, Steelers I, seems doable, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I don't think the Steelers are going to win that game outright, so I'd do that one. Okay. If it were me. But plus if you feel like confident in the Steelers, do that. I, I like the second one, too. It just seems safer. Like like you said, the Chiefs win every single time against the Broncos. That's a lock. Plus nine and plus seven and a half. Winning, like, losing by a touchdown or less for two home teams that are, like, decent at least. That seems like, uh, I don't know, I like that at least. Yeah, you know what's interesting about the Steelers is their offensive coordinator, Matt Canada, everybody hates them. Nobody likes the guy. Like, it, talk to any Steelers fans. They all think he stinks, which he does, doesn't use... Like, it's, it's almost like last year, Patricia was the biggest storyline in the NFL from an offensive coordinator position. Everybody thought this guy was atrocious. Canada kind of got like, like was like let off the hook because he doesn't do anything exotic, no motion, nothing mm-hmm. along those lines. And the Steelers' offense is pretty vanilla. And that right. guy still has a job. Like, Mike Tomlin's done a lot of great things there. Like, he's never had, he's never had a record south of 500, right? I mean, Bill Belichick, we know, can't even say that. Yet, he has this weird like relationship with Matt Canada to the mm-hmm. point where he's still on his coaching staff, which is just a dumpster fire. Although I, I, I thought about retiring last week from the NFL in terms <laughs> of gambling because that was It'll freaking that wild. That was wild, man. Yeah. That was absolutely insane what happened last week <laughs> in the NFL. I mean, college football too has been, it's been weird lately as well. And we'll see like going forward, I'm interested to see Texas now because yours is hurt. Are we going to get some Arch Manning at some point? Ooh, juicy. 
Yeah. The, the college slate's not great this week, but the NFL slate always delivers. NFL slate delivers. I think as a gambler, you got to short memory and be uh, and persevere through the bad losses. Only yes, way to and, do it. And bet responsibly. That's right. Teasers. Yeah. All right, Jamie. Great stuff, man. See you, Ryan. All right, as always, make sure to leave us a voicemail, 617-396-7172. James White will be with us after the game on Sunday, Pats and Dolphins. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700, or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.